Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the alternate current radio network.com and also at 21st Century Wire.com. Thank you so much for joining us. So here we are. We set up this makeshift studio, uh, studio in a box, studio in a backpack. And uh, now uh, there's a number of Be- Beirut is a great location for there's a lot of fantastic journalists in this city there's a lot they're from all over the world they're here they congregate here they write for various newspapers in britain in the united states in europe in the middle east all so many tv channels as well are based here in beirut and they broadcast throughout uh the mena region throughout the middle east as far as Asia, as far as North America. So in terms of great geopolitical analysts, this is a great place to be. Now, with all that's going on in the world, especially in the near vicinity, um, I I was on a program on RT called Crosstalk, and uh, I was opposite uh, the guest I'm about to uh, introduce to you. Her name is Marwa Osman, and uh, without going into too much detail, uh, she is teaching uh, at a university here in Beirut, the uh, Lebanese American University. Uh, she's international university. International university. So she's working on her very close to uh, completing her PhD, and uh, she is a geopolitical analyst, a fantastic TV presenter. Uh, I've caught some of her programs. In fact, I linked to one of her shows, which was on AEE TV. It's on the show page. And she's a very sharp uh, analyst. And uh, I was amazed watching her on TV because. I know that you have to read a teleprompter part of the time when you're doing the TV, when you're hosting. But this, Marwa, I was amazed at your ability to basically transition from the teleprompter to normal speak, and you couldn't even tell. So I know that you've had some training uh, in journalism or something, because that's not a skill that anybody has. So, um, but thank you for joining us this week. Thank you very much for having me with you, Patrick. It's it's really an honor to be with you and to see you finally after the show with uh, on RT. And by the way, back then I was a bit emotional because I was eight months pregnant. So, <laughs> yeah, that was really congratulations uh, as well. I thank saw you. the Facebook pictures. Yeah, You're yeah. very nice. Thank you very much. So you've been busy yeah. uh, with. You've got students who you're teaching. Yes. You're also working on your PhD. Yes. You're also writing for a number of publications. Yes. And you've written some, and these are some very interesting uh, topics here, and capitalism in Iran, Mm -hmm. anti-imperialist capitalism. Yes. These are very pithy, deep subjects. Okay, yes. so and and uh, uh, the first one, the first publication in the major magazine was uh, liberal Salafism, uh, which is uh, basically about all the ideology of ISIS that people uh, don't know where it came from. And so it's a it's a huge uh, research on that point as well. And so um, I'm going to ask you first before we start, how did you get into this field? Because I'd, I'd like to know, because I know you've had formal training yes. in journalism. Is that what you set out to study, or is this something you got no, into by accident? Um, actually, I majored, I have two master's degree in uh, business management, uh, and we were doing some consulting work for Al-Mayadeen TV. It's a very well-known uh, TV in the Middle East, and it was starting up, and I, I worked in a consulting uh, firm. I uh, did all the presentations there, and while I was doing the presentation, the, uh, the senior director was sitting with the with the group and he offered yes he offered why not to get trained along them and become an anchor but i i apologize because my arabic is not that 
I, I'm not that good in the formal Arabic one, you know, Arabic grammar is really hard. Uh, so he introduced me to some uh, other uh, uh, people in the media. Uh, we started with Press TV, but they wanted to send me to Syria. That was back in 2011. There was nothing yet in Syria, but I was preparing to get married and have the time or, or, or the effort, actually, to go all the way there. And then Syria happened. But uh, after Press TV, there was Al Itijah, and we started training there. We started working there. I got training from uh, the bottom line up everything, uh, including lighting, montage, everything related to TV. And uh, I got to do the news. I was a news anchor for more than two years and then got, uh, thankfully, got my own show. It was called The Middle East Stream. We spoke about everything that was going on in the Middle East, uh, especially with all the uh, so-called Arab spring revolutions happening all over the place it was a wave it was a tsunami wave that was stri- striking the entire area and we we had uh, some good shows there some pretty good shows and uh, then uh, we had i had my second baby and i had to, to give something up for for the time being and then hopefully return uh, soon inshallah okay so you're taking a break from television uh, yes. for the moment you yes. just do occasional spots with yes uh, paneling uh, usually on on rt on on other uh, arabic tv channels as well uh majorly yeah that's that's the case and but i've i've i haven't stopped uh writing no i've i've even uh i took more uh let's say if you can uh, uh projects if you will, um, about writing. And I uh, recently, not much recent, but let's say five months ago, I became uh, a regular uh, writer in the op-ed section for Khaminai.ir, for Sayyid Ali Khaminai's website in English language. So that was a big step for me as well. I'm very thankful that they uh, played so something in me and gave me this uh, platform. Yeah, that's uh, so. You, you you are quite um, visible, and especially now, is is your work visible in Arabic or just in no, English? No, in English. In English. In English okay. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about Lebanon, so people get a perspective. And yeah. how long have you have you have you lived in Lebanon? Uh, well, uh, I was born and raised in uh, Dubai in the UAE, and we came back to Lebanon in the late '90s. And uh, my first war. Sadly, this is how we speak in Lebanon. My first war in Lebanon was uh, the 2000 uh, war. The Israeli uh, entity uh, waged war on Lebanon. They uh, they just wreaked havoc in the entire uh, city, in not only in South Lebanon, also in Beirut. And then the major, uh, the really major war that was the first timer for me was the 2006 uh, war, also known in the in the mainstream media as the Third Lebanese War. But it's not even the Lebanese war. It was an Israeli war waged on Lebanon. It was very much a dramatic point for me, for all the youth uh, in Lebanon. I was 19 at the time. So it was, it was uh, very much impacting, impacting my entire life. And I lost uh, friends. I lost cousins. It was very uh, emotional. Uh, it was, it's hard to be 19 and then to bury your six-year-old cousin. It's very hard. Uh, so since, since then on, I became very much uh, interested in politics to know why the major question, why was this happening to us? Why Lebanon? Why the Middle East? Why are my people dying? Why are majorly the people who speak Arabic or who are from uh, the MENA region are dying? So I started doing some research, uh, and university helped a lot to get more in contact with groups who are more uh, political-affiliated groups. 
because uh, if you don't really know where to go, you might fall in the wrong hands as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I started uh, talking with lots of people, talking with people who have been uh, experts on the political scene in Lebanon for years, who have uh, experienced the civil war and the Israeli uh, invasion to Lebanon and the, uh, the multiple uh, and consecutive Israeli wars as well. And uh, this is how I got involved in politics to begin with uh, uh, before becoming a full-time journalist. So, so it was, your, it was really your 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 interest in what was going on around yes. you. It was. It that, was. Why should I be afraid to go out of my own house and not return, or to say good final goodbyes to my parents every time I'm leaving because I have no idea when, when a bomb would fall on my head? So that was a major question. Why am I not living a normal life? Mm-hmm. So that's that's it. Yeah, yeah and and life. Uh, Life in Lebanon is anything but normal. But normal, yes. It's, nothing is normal in, in yes. Lebanon. <laughs> Except the nightlife, if I may. We have a great nightlife. Yeah. But, but, uh, but uh, aside from that, no, it's not, it's not uh, at all normal. They have a saying here that I've, I picked up. They said, um, everything's, everything's fine until it isn't. Yeah, this yeah, is, this, exactly. This yeah. Is we, and we tend to find solutions for... Uh, basically everything every wall that we hit it's some sort of a good thing but it's it's bad as well because the state should take responsibility and it's not yeah well we'll talk about that yeah. in a little bit because i have a an interesting point about that but so okay so it, putting that into perspective uh recent years and i know that you've commentated you don't just commentate on middle east affairs i, I know that you're up to date on the ukraine mm-hmm. you're looking at european affairs mm-hmm. And so forth. So, and and the United States foreign policy and the of whole, course, of what's going on in China, everything. It, exactly, yeah. because when you go, when you start in, in such a small country like Lebanon and start looking for answers, you you it doesn't take you long to to begin to find out that the answers are bigger than Lebanon. Yep. You go farther than that, and you start looking at the strategic uh, planning, the strategic goals set for this country, and who is setting them, and therefore you go higher and higher to get to the imperialism, to the capitalism, to every other side of uh, that's affecting the, the daily lives, the, the very specific details in, in the daily lives of the normal civilians. One of the complaints I've, I've, I've heard from a few other, what I, what I would call very awake academics and commentators here, is they said that the majority of this kind of Lebanese, uh, Middle Eastern media have kind of blinders on. Yeah. They don't really want to get into sort of the bigger themes because... For whatever reason, I don't know, because it's too complicated, or people just don't like to hear it, or it just doesn't fit no, with the local. Not, I don't know what it, it doesn't fit with the uh, plans and the strategic goals of the leaders of the sectarian leaders in Lebanon, who are who are warlords. By the way, they are the warlords who set the civil war in Lebanon, and now they are the politicians. Uh, they are on every major position in the government, so it's not uh, in their favor, if you will for the public to really know what's going on, to, to see that they are only uh, majorly just, uh, uh, let's say, they are, they're stones that can be moved on a chessboard. That's, what, that's mm-hmm. all that, what they are. So they don't want people to know this, but uh, they, they don't have uh, the real power to stop uh, people from researching and from finding out what's going really on. So. And, and I think with, uh, you know, and, well, <laughs> the issue of the Internet mm-hmm. in this country, on the league tables, it's got one of the lowest... Um, you know, internet access, lowest speeds, most expensive data. And in a way, that's eventually that's going to have to change because uh, the next generation is demanding more and more access to information. And as people become more aware globally, they start to see the big themes. They start to connect the dots. And I think this is happening in Europe and in North America. People are beginning to see past some of the old um, narratives. 
But is it safe to say that you know in this country that has been so uh, traumatized and damaged by what they would call a civil war, but it wasn't completely a civil war yes, yes. Uh, through the 70s, the 80s, and part of the 90s. 90s. The people who managed to uh, take factions of power or sectarian, they, they never let go after the war f- mm-hmm. finished. After mm-hmm. hostilities ceased, they still held on to their various power bases. Yes, yes. And is this why we're at where we're at right now and and maybe we are now at a at a crossroad where these uh, specific people who are now aged obviously uh, they are trying to inherit their regimes to to the either their sons or their son-in-laws or their friends or whoever they want but it's not it's seemingly not going to work because the people are fed up with this and especially the the 90 the 90s and the 2000 generation the, the people who are of the post-war generation the millennials yeah. Especially in, because the war is, is it's different from uh, the areas of war or the eras of war from a place to another. So these specific people, uh, the youth, are, are fed up with this. They will not uh, put up with this anymore. And, and a great example is the, is the waste management uh, problem in Lebanon. We eight months of waste on the streets. People cannot begin to comprehend what we were going through. I would not let my kids out of the house for them not to in- inhale any sort of toxic uh, air. I would just keep them locked in their rooms because I was afraid. We had we, tuberculosis was back in Beirut. Can you believe that? TB. Yes. Well, we've seen, you know, I'll get to that in a minute. But so the garbage crisis yeah. you're talking about, some people might have seen this yeah. in the news because it did get global CNN, coverage. Yes, yes. Okay, but the garbage crisis. So people are looking at this thing. How is this possible? And if you think about it, no matter what country you live in, if there's no central government, yeah. You have potential, because what does the government have to do? The first things they have to do is maintain the water, maybe the power, facilitate power and uh, waste management, taking the trash away, basically, and then disposing of it. That actually happened because the government was not doing that. The municipalities are supposed to do that in in Lebanon. And what happened is that at the early 90s, there was some sort of a deal that was brokered uh, for one, uh, for for uh, actually making it a private sector. Uh, so what they did is they took this job from the municipalities and gave it to one, only one company, without even having uh, any sort of, of, of uh, bidding. A, 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 no bidding, no nothing. Yeah. No, no other company came and proposed any sort any sort of proposal. They just gave it to this company uh, with uh, the owner. I think is uh, is Maisa Rasukar. Uh, it's called the Suklin. Suklin, yeah, uh, I've seen them around sweeping the Suklin, up. And, the the yeah. SUK is the Sukara uh, part of his family name, the Suklin. Uh, so uh, yes, they they took over this uh, this duty of, of waste management in Beirut. And what happened is that at the beginning of, uh, of at, the, at the end of 2015 or the, at the uh, middle of 2015, their contract was about to be uh, done, was about to end. And because the pockets of the leaders were not full enough, they had some sort of a bickering over uh, who should uh, renew, whether they should renew the contract or not, or whether they should give the contract, uh, they should start a bidding system for that or not. Or, uh, but they, they had made just a, a fight. They were fighting over money. That's what it was. So our country was floating with waste for eight months until they went back to the same contract and renewed it. They, they renewed the contract without even thinking about uh, some sort of, an, of a viable and sustainable waste management system that, and a solution that would just hinder this problem from happening again. And that's, that's just Lebanon. That's so back to square one. Yes. Back to square. So piles of... Uh 
Some people have seen the pictures piled. Yeah, now they are garbage. taking the piles, but they are they are dumping them in a very unhealthy way. Uh, it is very bad for the environment and for the health. And they are choosing, believe it or not, they are choosing the shores of Beirut. I've seen this. They are uh, yes. coming up the are, highway. Why? Why would you put? Why would you want to bury it right on the coast? Because of the wind would no, take the smell because away. Because none of the leaders would accept that their provinces could. Uh, uh, could inhabit these wastes, even though it can, it, it would, if, if they would accept on a, on a waste management solution that is a sustainable one, that is a new with high technology that secures the usage of the waste for for other matters, they could they could basically use the waste in Lebanon to generate electricity, and then right. and then just increase the the uh, lifespan of of the dumps from twenty uh, from five years to twenty years and, re- and recycling after recycling obviously yeah. but they just don't want because they don't want to think farther than their noses they chose to just do it to our beach our beautiful coastal line of beirut is now full of, of waste yeah that, it's uh, it's a shame well you know i really hope that a b- better solutions come to the front well i don't see that in, in the near future but i hope for that too yeah well we all hope for that i know it's it's it seems like it's almost an impossibility sometimes but yeah. you have to you have to maintain hope but uh, okay there's another crisis that's hit this country really hard which i want you to to talk to our listeners about um the the, the war in syria mm-hmm. which isn't a civil war either <laughs> not really it's about a civil war is is the Lebanese war was well, a civil war. If you, if you want to start right, you should, you should say the war on Syria. The war on it's Syria. It's not even the war in Syria. It's it's a group of, it's a state uh, that have uh, put some sort of a plan to uh, just to wreak havoc inside of Syria, the last secular state in the Arab system. And, and this is the coalition who's doing this, yes, right? Yes, obviously. So the same the coalition that's supposedly who fighting. Who are led by the yeah. United States of America, by uh, Western Europe, in specific, by the UK, that started all of this back in the First World War. All of this, this is not something that happened just five years ago. This is something that has been happening for over, for almost 100 years in the Middle East. And with the help of the very good friends of Syria, I'm being ironic and sarcastic here, uh, the Gulf states, and namely Saudi Arabia and Qatar. So they just uh, put together their efforts to uh, break down Syria because of uh, various political and strategic issues related to uh, oil, related to the Israeli uh, file, related to many uh, files, to be honest. And they they thought that Syria will be just like Libya, a piece of cake where they can just go in and bomb. But they they had really no idea what Syria was. They They didn't even read the history of Syria. Syria has never really fallen fully in the hands of any invader because Syria is unified. It is secular. It is. It has. Uh, it has succeeded in separating the, the religion from the state, mm. and they they just didn't like that because it was very much threatening their monarchy. So this is what happened in Syria. But uh, hopefully and and. Happily, if I may, uh, Syria is regaining control of the major uh, cities, of the major sites that have uh, been fallen to the ISIS hands uh, slowly. But, I mean, it's a great, uh, uh, let's say, step forward from five months back to now. It's it's great on all levels, so we're thankful for that. I mean, it's really dire, um, the, the, the amount of families that have been broken up, the amount of people that have died, the amount of whole cities... Whole towns have been absolutely like decimated. Yes. Basically, Rubbles. I mean, yes. you look at Aleppo, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and you look at the Acropolis and you look at surrounding, and it's just 
It's, a it's shame. beyond. It's a shame that yeah. the people who were actually destroying the city did not have the eye to, to just just stop for a moment and look at what they are really destroying. They are destroying history. They are destroying heritage. They are killing people who had never just turned a bullet against anyone. They are very peaceful people. They are very beautiful people. It's, it's, a, it's a mosaic of people. It's people from everywhere, from uh, Syria, especially Aleppo, especially the coastal line, has people who are from uh, Arabian origins, from Armenia, from Turkey. From People have joined hands and made a great community that ISIS and its affiliates and its uh, uh, helpers from the outside managed to destroy. So... And, uh, and and also you can't uh, you can't talk about this without uh, this coalition without talking about Turkey yes. have played yes. um, and, you know early on in this no one really took an eye on Turkey early on and within the last year yeah. it, Turkey's really come into the focus yes. and yes. not in a positive way no not in a positive and, way and no, but, but before we, we, we talk about Turkey I want to say something that uh, that people uh, mainly, the mainstream media has been talking about this but uh, the Syrian armed forces have taken full control of Palmyra, as we all uh, know, and that, that uh, especially it's, it's the west central uh, Homs province. Uh, they they took over, they liberated uh, Palmyra, uh, and they uh, opened. It's, it has basically opened up the army and uh, for for heavy blows against Daesh, against ISIS, in many other areas. Especially now, they they might and they will. Not only might they will start uh, closing in on Deir Ezzor and Raqqa, and Raqqa is the base of ISIS. Uh, community and ISIS a military basis, so we're gonna. It's gonna start to become interesting. Yet the mainstream media, and I predict that the mainstream media will have a very uh, naughty uh, handling of the situation because Raqqa, as we all know, is is heavily populated area where people are imprisoned by ISIS to stay there. Mm-hmm. Cannot leave. If you leave, you'll die. And if you don't follow their lead, you'll die. So it's it's going to be very interesting to see how uh, Raqqa and Deir Ezzor will be dealt uh, with by the Syrian Arab Army and their uh, their allies, uh, Hezbollah and and the forces present there, as well as the Russian forces, the Russian uh, jets and uh, and the air as well. Now, if you want to talk about uh, Turkey uh, and, th- and that matter, you're t- saying that Turkey did uh, have. Uh, uh, it was put on the spotlight from a year ago now until now. And not only on the spotlight, the terrorist attacks ins- inside Turkey have been increasing as well. And that's major because of the uh, the, polit- the foreign policy of, of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, of the, of the president of Turkey, Mr. Erdogan. Now, what's what's very interesting, actually, is what happened two days ago when, when the Jordanian king, King Abdullah, accused, publicly accused, Turkey and especially Erdogan of sending terrorists to Europe. He literally said that. That was that was that is more than amazing. And that's only that came out one day after a report that was issued by a very well known man in 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 the U.S. I just I forgot his name and I'll try and remember his name. Where he wrote a report, a full report about how a, a coup, a military coup, is is being prepared inside of Turkey and how Erdogan will fall. Not only out of his of his office, but will fall into the 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 uh, bars of the court, mm-hmm. and how his son has fled Italy just uh, a month uh, or so ago. He fled Italy using a Saudi passport because he's wanted by the mafia and by the Italian uh, uh, special uh, services, intelligence services. So King Abdullah. The king of Jordan is publicly accusing Erdogan of sending terrorists to Europe. He forgot to say that he was sending them also to Syria, but he's emphasizing on the Turkish role in, in, uh, in harboring uh, terrorists inside of, of uh, 
of Europe, because obviously if it wasn't for Turkey's foreign policy to uh, to open its doors for uh, the refugees to reach Europe, this would not have been the case. Obviously, Merkel had also Angela Merkel had a, had a hand in this by by forcing the European uh, states to open for an open door policy, which was very bad, unwise. We had we had very much of talks, conferences made there in, in Paris, specifically in other parts of Europe. We were very much uh, trying to, to tell them to be careful because this was not good. We know how bad the situation can can go and how fast it can go because of the terrorists. And we told them that not all the refugees are refugees because you have people. How would a refugee be an actual refugee without his family? How would one man be leaving all the way from so-called uh, war-stricken areas inside of Syria going all the way to Turkey and then going all the way from Turkey via uh, the agency to Europe by himself. Mm. How is that a refugee? Where is his mother? Where is his wife? Where, this, where, where are his sisters, his brothers? Where's the family? What is he fleeing from? And most of them are, are registered as terrorists because you, because you cannot enter uh, Turkey and then enter Syria without, without your passport. So they are very well known to be terrorists and one of the examples, I don't have to be general about this, I just got, can give the, the name of Abdus Salam, the, the, the terrorist who blew himself, he, he blew himself up in, in uh, Brussels. Erdogan himself said that he was deported back in June from Gaziantep, which is a, a town in southeastern Turkey. He was deported back to Brussels. To, Bel- to Belgium, and, and the Belgian authorities said no, he was deported to another country, but he was deported to Europe. So what was he doing there? How is he a refugee? How did he enter Europe when he was deported? On what basis was he deported? How did these European uh, uh, security officers, re- uh, how did they uh, actually have him back? I mean, when they took him back, what did they do with him? Why he was he out? Well, th- 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 this is a more complicated conversation and and we saw this with uh in london after 7-7 uh rashid harun aswat who turned out to be an informant for british intelligence yes so 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 there's a gray area with a lot of these guys and this is the thing that's almost impossible to talk about in any media because it's classified and and this but now it's being declassified because when we hear the king of of jordan which is a big he's he's the biggest ally for the west and in the middle east so so why is he called why is he called a bluff not only that he say he literally said i'm quoting here he said erdogan believed in a radical Islamic solution to the region by letting foreign fighters in. Into where? He so, means into Syria. But so, so this is a strategy of tension, yes, right? This yes. is clear. This is a policy, a strategy of tension. Against Erdogan. To bring pressure yes. on an area, a country. So we call this uh, we- weapons of mass migration, but even more insidious. Uh, he he if, even if, said that that uh, why why uh, why would why would the European uh, Union agree to give uh, to struck a de- they struck a deal with Turkey with a three billion dollar deal to keep the refugees in place. We are talking about the same countries that were crying over the summer for the refugees saying, oh, boo-hoo, the, the refugees are drowning in the Asian Sea, they are dying because of Assad's bombs. This was all a show. There is something even bigger than what we comprehend that is going on that right now in Europe and that, that did go on in Europe when the refugees were taken into European uh, territory. But now, why now is, is the Jordanian... Uh, uh, the, the king of Jordan talking about this and accusing Erdogan in specific, naming him. And what will the international community do to deal with Erdogan and his threats? Well, the reality is this. Even if you paid 
even if the EU paid Turkey 3 billion euros, there is no guarantee. We, anyone who works on the ground, who works in any of these NGOs, will tell you there's no guarantee they can actually stop the flow of people into Greece or certain parts of Eastern Europe. So what is it? It's a tribute payment. It's, Isn't it kind of like a paying the, the mafia it's don? A bribe. It's, it's, yes, <laughs> to, it's typically you're bribing someone for certain things to be done or not to be done. Or not to be done. Exactly. Yeah, and that's the, that's the part that mainstream media can't sometimes get their head around. And so we see, if you watch CNN or any of the big networks... They, they seem like they're on another planet, to be, w- to well, be they, honest with you. That, you know, they can't envision that someone would pay that amount of money for something not to be done. Yes. This becomes a very difficult thing to analyze. Yeah. Now, some writers can. Yes. Your Seymour Hirsch or Robert Perry or some of these other really good investigative journalists will look a little bit deeper. RT has some great analysts that yeah. will look a little bit deeper into that the this. mainstream media usually calls propaganda. Right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Kremlin propaganda. Yeah. I know, I've heard it before. And, and we, the journalists, are, are called either Shabiha or even fascists if we're going to talk about what's really going on in Syria. Because we're trying to portray the truth for the public, especially the Western public, of what's really going on. And we get uh, uh, by the by the mainstream media. So, so, how, so how has the refugee crisis affected Lebanon? Because it... It's been going for quite a few years now. And Lebanon, let me just put this in perspective. The proportion of refugees that Lebanon has uh, absorbed. Now, this is a country the size of Wales. Yes. Or Rhode Island. Yes. Okay. The, the proportion in terms of your population here, the amount of, that you've taken in since 2011, okay, let, let this would be the equivalent clear. of... Of, of uh, what, 50 million in Europe? Let, equivalent? Let me, exactly. Yeah. Let me tell you what's going on. Lebanon, as you said, is, is the equivalent size of uh, which, which island you could live of? Uh, Rhode Island. Rhode Island. Yeah. And I think it's, that's in, in uh, Massachusetts, New yes. England. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if we take that, this is the size of Lebanon. And the population of Lebanon is 4.5 to maximum 5 million. 5 million. That's like, that's, you could find more people in the airport in China. Mm. We have 5 million population Lebanese uh, people living in Lebanon. And the refugees, they are uh, 2.3 million. The registered are 1.7 by the UN. But the real number. But the real number is 2.7. That's half, I'm repeating, that's half the Lebanese population, people. We were the first country to be really stricken by the terrorists that was coming out of Syria. And then you would have the nerve of certain states that would say, why is certain uh, military men, or even not even not to talk, go talk about Hezbollah in specific, let's talk about this, the Lebanese army. They would say, why is the Lebanese army residing on the borderline with Syria and attacking these so-called rebels, quote-unquote? Moderate, moderate rebels, rebels. The right? rebels that were, that were bombing and sending missiles across into Lebanon, into inhabited areas into Lebanon, what would you want any other uh, soldier to do, any other army to do, except to defend their own borderline? Yeah. I mean, that was so hypocritical of of every state that was so saying that we don't have the right to defend ourselves that's that's insane mm. the if i don't know if you if you managed to go into the suburban area of beirut where the uh, checkpoints are there if it weren't for these checkpoints the checkpoints of the Lebanese army forces and the checkpoints of the, i'm going to be very specific of the hezbollah forces in lebanon if, there, if, if it wasn't for these checkpoints, in the Bekaa, personally, no, yeah. no, no, and even in Beirut suburbs, yeah. in Dahiya, in, in the region, uh, it's, it's it literally the suburb of Beirut, uh, it's the southern suburb of Beirut. If it wasn't for these checkpoints, I would talk about myself, I'm not going to talk about the general public, I would have died twice, not once. 
I dodged twice and two explosions and one a, a twin explosion and one another explosion and one of them I had both of my kids who are less than five years old back in the back of the car in the car seats. So when people talk about we don't have the right to be fighting on our borderline or even further by the request yeah. by the request of the Syrian government, then there's something obviously wrong because we also everyone going absolutely crazy about San Bernardino or other... Uh, or Brussels, even. Uh, over, or Brussels. They're, they're calling it a war zone. It, it, this is what... This well, is, so I, I would understand. Compared to other places... Yes, I would understand that yeah. they, they have... Uh, I mean, if we're talking about a population that have never maybe seen a, really, a real soldier mm-hmm. on the ground in their own city, that would be majorly uh, horrifying to see. But for us, well, we, we've been... I don't want to make that we don't care or we are used to it. No, we're not. We will never be used to this. Yeah. But... The thing is that the, the general public, and especially the, the overall public that listens to mainstream media and watches mainstream media, will be stricken, horrifically stricken, by terrorism uh, hitting uh, Europe, because Europe is, is it's, it's, it's a heritage. It's an entire uh, continent where people come from all over the world to visit. And when we talk about Western Europe, that's different. Because if terrorism was hitting Eastern Europe, that would be very much different, and mm-hmm. we would not even hear. We would not. We don't yeah. have. We in wouldn't Bulgaria have hashtag. Or, yeah, we yeah. wouldn't have hashtag. Just we. Uh, uh, let's say uh, Croatia or, yeah. or something else. Yeah. So just we Bucharest. Yes, yeah. for example. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, but, but the same day, at the same day, when Brussels happened, we had a terrorist attack in Iraq, mm-hmm. but no one seems to care, and it was youth. It was children. 13 years old, 14 years old, they were getting the rewards in a football match. After a football match, you deliver the awards to the people who won, to the teams who won. They were getting their awards, and an ISIS lunatic blew himself up with kids. Kids! Mm. So, and it was more than, more than 40 deaths. Where, where's the world from this? And Yemen, too. Uh, oh. we, we, we can talk about that as a separate yes. conversation, but same, same principle applies, yes. right? A year of war yeah. on an entire country that, that the mainstream media uh, labels as the backyard of Saudi Arabia. Have they seen how big is Yemen? Mm-hmm. Do they know where Yemen <laughs> yeah. is on the map? Yeah. Or how rich Yemen's yes. uh, culture and history is. It's fantastic. And actually. even uh, resource, uh, resources-wise, how rich they are with gas and with, uh, with fuel oil as well. But, so. g- but going back to the hashtag thing, yeah. I think it's a good point. You know, the Paris attacks before Christmas, uh, at the, around the same time or very yes. right before Lebanon had two, right? Twin bombs in the same week. Twin bombs, same week. That was the twin attack in Burj al-Barajni area. That's in suburban area in Beirut. No hashtags. No nothing. No one changed their we Facebook have, Facebook profile very, to put the flag why, of we Lebanon. Don't need the Facebook profile. Let's let's talk about Lebanon. Let's talk about the Raushe uh, rock, which is a, a symbolic heritage rock in, in Beirut, the, the where pigeon the rock. Lebanese yeah. yeah yeah where the Lebanese authorities chose to light the French flag on the rock and forgot that we had a twin blast in Beirut. It's incredible. But this is this more the globalization of n- not just social media, but this kind of, I don't know, this is no. a product of globalization. Is, no, no, no. This, this is, is part this? of the diversification and sectarianism inside of Lebanon where, where the people who did that truly believe that we don't have a terrorist problem because all the terrorism that was happening was stric- was stricking certain areas. And when we talk about Lebanon, we have to be uh, tough to tell facts. And th- Lebanon is divided upon sects. Mm. So these areas are being hit because majorly people who are from the Shia sect are 
uh, living there. And ISIS believes that Shias are infidels. Mm-hmm. And as so are uh, Christians, so are every, everyone. Everyone is infidel for, for anyone ISIS. who's not them is an infidel. Yes, exactly. Basically. So uh, basically, the, the Lebanon has people who believe that we don't have a terrorist problem and that the Lebanese army is alone, fully uh, uh, capable of handling it. I'm not saying that the army is not, but I'm saying that the army is under uh, uh, funded. It is under weaponized. I mean, yeah. we should have. Uh, been funded when when I, when Israel was bombing us, and we did not get the funding. We did not get the weapons. We did not get anything. Now, when ISIS is wreaking having all all the all over the place, people should stop questioning whether the Syrian, whether the Lebanese army could do it or not, because obviously the European army could not do it. Not not European country was able to predict or to stop the terrorists. I mean, right. I mean, I'll give you an example. When when Brussels happened, the, the airport happened. Two explosions at the airport. Why on earth did they not close the underground metro system? Why did after one hour people still using the public transportation and they were under risk? And I'm very sure that they know this. I'm, I'm nobody to be asking yeah. this, and they know more than I do. But why did why on earth did they keep the public transportation on? Yeah, they should they should just put the whole everything on stop Paris lockdown. after yeah. the airport attack. Paris stopped the metro system. Oh, and, and that and they're hundreds of miles away. Away, exactly. Yeah. So. You just ask questions where maybe I don't know what the answer would be. Maybe uh, I'll give I'm cut some slack for, for, for them. I'll just give them a break there and say that maybe there were uh, in a chaotic situation. They didn't know what to do. But this is this is what contingency planning is for. Yeah. Uh, well, that's 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 sad, but that's the truth. So so back back to the uh, back to the, the the refugee issue here. Yeah. I saw an interesting story this week, and I want to get your feedback. I don't know if you saw this story or not, but there was a, uh, let's say, an esteemed guest uh, visited uh, Lebanon. Ban Ki-moon. Ban Ki-moon, <laughs> my, um, our, our friend and yours. He's always concerned and worried. I'll give him a pill if he wants to <laughs> stop worrying. So, so Ban, I like to call him Ban, because yeah. we're, we're on first-name basis. So Ban was in Lebanon. and I thought should to be banned from Lebanon, <laughs> by the way. So the first thing I said to myself was, why would Ban Ki-moon of all places, come to Lebanon. And so I started reading the story. And let me tell you my conspiracy theory. Okay, okay? go ahead. You tell me if you agree or not. And I can't take credit for this, but uh, (laughs) uh, someone in my family had to actually come up with this amazing, which I think is the the accurate story. Theory, yeah. So Ban Ki-moon, UN Secretary General, comes to visit. This is what the press story was. He came to visit a Palestinian refugee camp that was destroyed in 2007 by militants, you know, Islamic, uh, yes. ISIS-type militants. So, and then there was, on the caveat, in the small print, I read, there's uh, organizing a $1 billion loan to Lebanon. Loan. F- a loan for education for all the Syrian children who, because it's a thank you to Lebanon for taking taking all these... Ref- thank you? They want, to make, they, want to, they want to make us pay... So, to so, educate the refugees which they helped formulate inside of Lebanon? Well, it, it, that's the idea. That's the idea, but I don't think that's what it was. Tell me if you think this is correct. I think, and so does the people who uh, my great advisors, yeah. think that this is a bribe for the, for the government to get their act together and basically get, have a, and for, I'm sorry to say form it a central work. government. Because it, it might it's not going to be used to educate all the refugees. Let's not be naive. That that money can get eaten up so fast in administration. Less than twenty four hours through NGOs and what? You don't need NGOs. You have the leaders. You have the warlords in Lebanon who can eat up everything. So, Only these money and one billion dollars. That's nothing. So so is, is this the UN? Is this Ban Ki Moon saying, guys? 
you got to actually put a central government together after how many Gee, years this, off? This is how long has it been? How long has it been since Lebanon had a central government? How many, uh, how many years? <laughs> is it four or five? About five years. And we've been two years without a president. And it's been unconstitutionally prolongating the parliament. The, parliament, the members of parliament have elongated their stay more than two years in Lebanon, which is unconstitutional. And they're even happy with it. They, they wouldn't like you to, to comment on it. But uh, let's talk about what Ban Ki-moon came here to do and why now he came to do what, what, whatever he wants to do. Uh, first of all, we're talking about a visit that came one week or two weeks after $3 billion that was uh, brokered with Turkey for the refugees. Now, okay. despite that Lebanon has maybe double the, the number of refugees that are present in Turkey, they came in with only $1 billion, not all, of a bribe of a loan. They want to give us a bribe that is from our own pockets. Right. That's, that's, and where's, this, where's the loan coming from? The World Bank, maybe? It's, I think it's the World Bank or the IMF. It's one of the two. Some, so, yeah, uh, either, either or, we already have $60 billion of public debt in, in Lebanon. You don't need billion. another billion. Yeah. Well, why would he bring this sum of money to the leaders of Lebanon when obviously we have a political deadlock in the country at, at a time when uh, the international, we have to be factual about this, when the international community specifically and namely Russia and the United States are uh, sitting on the same table negotiating a political solution for Syria. That's not a secret anymore. They want this to be over with and, and as fast as possible as well. So now when everything is supposedly going to be falling into place, they want to find a very fast solution to the refugees that are present in Lebanon because one, they wouldn't want these refugees all to go back to Syria because most of these refugees are not against the government. They were happily living uh, with great conditions inside their country until ISIS struck and the war began. So that's number one. They don't want all the refugees back at once. Number two, if uh, the refugees are to continue uh, to flee Lebanon, because we all know the coastal line of Lebanon has been a, a very good place to, to, to take and, and transport the refugees from and to uh, from Lebanon, especially uh, Be- Port of Beirut and Port of Trablos, Tripoli, uh, to Greece. Uh, or, if not Greece, to Turkey, Turkey, and then to Greece again. So um, they want to try and stop this. But that could easily be stopped in Lebanon in one word. Mm -hmm. One word. Because we all know who controls the ports in in Lebanon. It's very well known. So, uh, obviously, the government, I mean. But here's my my concern, and I'd like you to weigh in on this. A lot of people aren't aware that after the establishment of the Israeli state. Lebanon already took in a a tremendous amount of refugees. refugees, And so did Syria, and so did Jordan. I understand that. But the... And so they've... These are people without any uh, status. They don't have uh, citizenship. They're not allowed to really come and go in any direction. They're not allowed even to to, to work or to buy houses or anything. That's that's inhumane, by the way, but that's the case of Lebanon. So so if you take the refugees... Could we we see a repeat of this with the Syrian refugees? No, 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 no. No, no. no. It's a big no-no because this time there are certain uh, political parties in Lebanon that will basically refuse this because if this is the case, then if you take the refugees, the Palestinian refugees plus the Syrian refugees, if you take both um, uh, numbers, they are they are. I mean, they they, they make more than the actual Lebanese population. 
but it's such a tremendous pressure on the infrastructure, not on, only on the, the state services, and also the sectarian division inside Al Andalus. Well. Because the yeah. debate was, why not give the Palestinian refugees uh, a Lebanese ID card? Why not make them Lebanese? Because if they become Lebanese, they will break the sectarian system in yeah. Lebanon. Because uh, the Sunni. Uh, uh, population become the majority, uh, pop, the, the majority in Lebanon, and that would not be good for the Christian. So, so uh, is that the main concern? Is maintaining the status yes, quo wherever it is? The sectarian balance in Lebanon, but they, what they don't see is that this this system will break eventually mm. because it is a system that has zero services for the public they have zero well their health services whether the infrastructure whether simple public transportation uh, whether the basics. Uh, the, basics. the basics the the very basics and no one is happy with it at everyone now the voices are calling for uh, a one province lebanon where everyone is allowed to elect everyone else mm. not not only on the basis where you are from because i am Let's say I'm from South Lebanon. I'm not allowed to to vote where I live. I live in Beirut. I live in the city, but I'm not allowed to vote for a PM for a member of parliament, uh, for a member of parliament in Beirut. Mm-hmm. I have to go and vote all the way in South Lebanon, where I don't live, where I basically go once or twice a year on the holidays. That's that's just that's. So it sounds like the Italian parliament actually. Yeah, but it's it's nonsensical. I mean, it's illogical. So this the entire system has to be broken down and uh, reconstructed, and we have to take a really deeper look at breaking the sectarian system because no one. I mean. Civil marriage is not allowed in Lebanon. Can you believe that? This has to change. This has to stop. And basically, if we start somewhere, we will get into a better place. I know we will not stoop any lower than this. I'm very sure of this. But the refugee crisis is, has had its toll on, on, on Lebanon. By the way, the Lebanese foreign minister, Jibran Basile, was actually scorning the international uh, community the other day over the refugee uh, Syria crisis. Because what happened is that, is that there's an inconsistency of countries that, that actually back the armed insurgency inside of Syria and then come and preach the Lebanese people, the Lebanese government over uh, uh, putting the human rights uh, uh, factor first. Okay. I mean, what are you talking about? You're bombing a country or help bomb a country where people are running from and they find a safe haven in Lebanon and then you come and preach us that we are not doing what we supposed to do because we don't have the capability to do what you are asking I, us. I assume you're talking about the GCC countries. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Right. And then they lecture, they lecture the Lebanese government also. I'm not... I'm, I'm, I'm not taking sides here, but I'm just telling what the facts are. So uh, they, they come and lecture, and at the same time, uh, they are uh, those the same the same people who are removing refugees from their own countries. Mm-hmm. For Kuwait, for example, or, or uh, the UAE, for example, they are kicking out Syrians and the Palestinians for no reason. Hold that thought. We're going to take a short commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about that. Plus, I want to uh, get your opinion on. Uh, not just the U.S. elections and how that might affect the region, okay, And uh, but also we're going to talk a little bit as well about uh, NATO and Turkey and that uh, a situation that's breaking down very rapidly. So we're going to take a short commercial break. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. Stay right there. We'll be right back. Star food for your mind, body, and spirit. A natural raw whole food. Combining a selection of nature's most perfect foods, it also contains large amount of naturally sourced monatomic gold. Star food. www.monatomicgold.co.uk
Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople, been a long time gone, old Constantinople, still a Turkish delight on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, not Constantinople, so with you for day in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul, even old Welcome back. Welcome back to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the alternate current radio network, streaming out live globally. We are on the road this week. Uh, we're no longer in our digs uh, in London or in the U.S. We are actually in the Middle East. We're broadcasting live from the Levant, from the capital of Lebanon, Beirut, a fantastic city with amazing people. And there's a lot going on uh, in Beirut, as we've discovered this week. And uh, we're here with our guest, Marwa Osman. She's a geopolitical analyst. She's a writer. Uh, she's also a uh, teacher in journalism and media studies at uh, Lebanese American University here in Beirut. And before the break, Mar Lebanese International University. Oh, is it Me Lebanese International? International it's not University. LE. Okay, no. the other one. Yeah. Lebanese International University. So before the break, Marwa, we were talking about a, a couple of things. Now, when we were on the program on RT, yes. you mentioned a story. You just hinted at it, and I got very interested. Yes. You said, I came face-to-face -face yes. with an ISIS fighter yes. in Turkey. And just I know how this conversation came about on the air. It's basically we had another guest who wasn't quite sure uh, whether... <laughs> this, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, from, from the Heritage Institute. Yeah. So, And you were saying, actually, no. Uh, these guys are basically staying in hotels, yes, yes. doing art, rest and relaxation. Uh, well, it was actually a group of terrorists, a group of ISIS-affiliated uh, terrorists who were uh, residing in uh, a specific hotel. I'm gonna not, it's a very well-known hotel in, in Istanbul. Uh, it was a four-star hotel. Uh, I was there on uh, a conference. We had a conference about uh, water management in the Middle East. And uh, we were there. It was very early in the morning. We were having breakfast at the restaurant, and it was really loud in the restaurant. We went inside, and uh, there were a group of seven or eight uh, uh, men, Middle Eastern men. They were speaking Arabic. I couldn't understand what they were speaking, but I was pretty sure it was from North Africa. It was uh, either either uh, Libya or uh, uh, Algeria or, or Tunisia. Tunisia. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was one of these three countries. I didn't know which one. So we were sitting there, and uh, my producer, and my very, very best friend, Kevork El Masyan, who, uh, who's now in, in Germany, by the way, he's, he's a Syrian from uh, Aleppo. Uh, so uh, we, uh, we wanted to shoot a, a show there about the water management, and uh, he was sitting with me on the same table, and he went to grab his breakfast. And when he left, and I'm, uh, as you see, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a veiled Muslim woman, so I'm wearing a veil. Uh, so they saw that as maybe a, 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 some sort of a front to start a conversation with me. One of them just came in, he took a chair, and he sat on my table. And I was, I was turning my back to them because I didn't want anything. I didn't want even to see them because I could see that uh, some has lost some limbs. Some, uh, they, they had legs uh, not there anymore. Some were the eyes, eye patches. They were obviously coming from a war zone. They are on some sort of a medical leave, and they're sitting in the hotel. Uh, where they, by the way, they were not allowed to leave the lobby. They were not allowed to go outside the hotel. They were staying inside the hotel. Interesting. So he just brought, uh, he just took a chair. He sat there and he started a conversation with me. He started asking me uh, where I was from in Arabic. I uh, looked at him and I started speaking in English. I was I told him in English to please uh, leave the table. 
because he's not welcome on my table and he didn't ask to sit on my table and that was rude and he need to leave he needs to leave so he just looked up the, at me and he said uh, i just heard you speak in arabic i know that you understand me and i said well since i you and you know that i can understand you and now here i started talking in arabic I told him i need you to pick up your plate and your things and leave my table now or else a scene will be will be at, 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 at your deposit and it will not be a nice one don't try me i'm not on your team buddy and he said what are you talking about we are jihadis we are fighting for the liberation of our uh, brothers in damascus we are uh, blah we are blah we started talking like this and i was like uh, he was like i am from libya where are you from tell him honey i'm from lebanon and you don't want nothing to do with me because i am against you my i'm fighting with you my entire family members of my family are fighting against you i don't want to see your face take your stuff and leave So when I started raising my voice, uh, the floor manager came in the restaurant and he asked me why I was upset. And I told him that this person just grabbed a chair and sat on my table and he's not welcome at my table. And then my producer friend came along. He was told me, he said, Mimaro, what's going on? Why are you angry? And I told him this, this happened. And my friend is really, really tall and well-built <laughs> one. Uh, so he, uh, the, the guy, the terrorist, basically just grabbed his stuff and uh, he said, well, uh, I apologize if I intimidated you. I, I, I didn't want to. He's like, was like, seriously just go look into the mirror you'll see why i was intimidated and uh, we actually had to change hotels uh, that day because uh, we we they they were placed in the same um, in the same floor oh, okay. uh, so we just picked our uh, our bags and left to another hotel and we made it vocal to the to the management who was very upset with them by the I, way i'd hate to read your customer feedback card that you filled out but from the thing that is hotel. that i was very angry while talking to the reception uh, to the manager there but he was angry himself for because they were uh, forced to help them it was not their choice Uh, but it was really it was scary yet very interesting and, and, at the same and what time. did and what did you take away from that in your mind did you you thought to yourself wow there's more going on with this story yes. that meets the eye not right not only that but i was like uh, very uh, hit by the fact that they are roaming all across turkey not only on the border side with syria and we're talking here in 2014 that's two years ago so not only on the border side with syria but inside istanbul inside the city where terrorists are where tourists uh, love everybody loves to go to turkey and see istanbul yeah. so we have terrorists in hotels and four-star hotels and everybody not only i was the only it was not only me the only person was really uh, disturbed and angered by the presence of these people but it was everybody else and then the restaurant there was people from china from asian people there were people from the u.s there were australian uh, tourists as well everybody was very uh, disturbed so by who, the, so by, who's picking up the bill That's the that's and the, the big four, question. Four star that's hotel staying for a month not, in a hotel. Maybe, maybe more than that because not only It's who's not, paying the bill, who brought them mm-hmm. to Istanbul, who brought them uh, to to Istanbul in the first place before they went and got injured in Syria, and then who brought them back, mm-hmm. and how were they brought back? So this is very well organized. This yes. isn't just uh, hey, I'm showing up with my backpack. Where's the no. fight? No, no, it's just more organized than yes, that. Yes, yeah. it's very much organized. You have people in the government who are organizing the trips of these people because at the, at the end of the day, you don't want them roaming in areas that you don't want them to be roaming in. So this is a this is what we would call, um, you know, uh, a dirty war, basically Un- under the table war, but governments working under the table through proxies. Mer- you call them mercenaries, call them terrorists, but this is a, like 
in the U.S., we had Nicaragua, yeah. El Salvador, Honduras. Yeah. Uh, this was a dirty war, working through proxies, government well, I, agencies. I'd like to think that there's no war that is not dirty, but uh, but this time it's a That's new true. it's a new type of war. It's a new strategy that is being implemented where why should the U.S. send troops? We all remember when back in 2014 when Obama was about to uh, uh, allegedly bomb uh, Syria using the, uh, uh, the, the warships in, in the Mediterranean. 2013, 2013 August. Yes, yes the, the end of 2013. We all remember that very well because it was very tense in the Middle East. We were, we were literally looking up at the sky and watching and waiting if we we're going to see missiles just whizzing over our heads. So back then, it was a serious thought for, uh, for the Obama administration saying, why should we do that? do the dirty work of other people and our dirty work as well. I mean, they pay, the U.S., you guys paid a, a very uh, high bill from your own tax money in, in Iraq. Now, not, also, not to forget the 1.5 million martyrs deaths in, uh, of Iraqi deaths Iraqis, in Iraq. Iraqi citizens. Yes, yeah. citizens, men, women, and children in, in Iraq as well. So they paid a very high price. And uh, the Obama administration was very uh, vocal about not wanting to wage any sort of war. They wanted to keep the soldiers, the boots of the American soldiers, in the main American land. So they would think, why, would, why should we send our boys to fight while we can just uh, pay the money? And, and this time, the U.S. did not pay the money. It was their allies who did. It was Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE, everyone in the, in the GCC area who paid willingly and happily for this uh, war to happen. And how much do they pay the, 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 the rebels, the terrorists, the fighters? What's their monthly salary? It, 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 range it ranges, from, right? Yes, it can range from 400 to more than $1,000. And if we're talking about commanders, well, commanders who have the money at their disposal, well, we have, we have lots of examples and cases of, of ISIS commanders who fled, one with $25 million from, from yes, from Anbar, and one who fled from Syria with $15 million. We have lots of examples where they see this huge amount of cash and that tells you about the ideology that they that they have in their minds it's like uh, it's just built for the money that's why they're there they're they are there because uh, most most of the arab uh, region is uh, inflicted with poverty Mm. They say, we'll pay you, and even if you die, we'll continue paying your family. Obviously, they are lying. This is not the case. Yeah. It's not happening. But that's the attraction to and recruiting, they, and when right? when they die, yeah. they're not even taking them back to their families. I mean, even if this is a terrorist, his mother does not acknowledge that his, he is a terrorist. If you're talking about terrorists who are from the Middle East, not, not mercenaries coming from all over the world, if you're talking about, let's say, Libyans, there's a mother for this terrorist who, did, who does not believe that her son is a terrorist, who does not want her son to be away fighting. And he dies, and they don't have the decency to give his body back to that mother, even though he's a terrorist. Yeah, there's I no mean, support so, system. Nothing, nothing. They leave them there. Yeah. They just leave them there. We had thousands thousands of, of ISIS terrorists fleeing the northern side of Syria when Aleppo was regained, uh, with major uh, the parts of Aleppo was regained by the Syrian Arab army and their uh, allies. You had thousands of people running to the, to the uh, border with Turkey, and we all saw how Turkey closed that border. That was less than three months ago. Yep. They closed the border, and, and then we started hearing the voices of these so-called Syrians, and half of whom were not even Syrians, started saying that Turkey wants us to go back, they want us to, to die uh, at the bombs, of, at, the, at the Russian bombs, at the, at the feet of the Russians. Yes. So they, they, want, they don't want us let I saw this report. in. Yeah, yeah. so the, you had ISIS terrorists fleeing, because no one is there to back them, because they were left. And the supply line was cut. 
Yes. The, ra- that, the rat thanks line, to the Russian, it, yeah. Yes, thanks to the Russian intervention in Syria, it was cut. Uh, the Turkish uh, business with ISIS, uh, the stealing of the Syrian oil from, from northern Syria, what stopped the roots of uh, funding and arming these terrorists was also stopped. Uh, uh, unfortunately, it was stopped one year later after I lost a dear friend. Uh, we all know the American-Lebanese journalist, uh, her name is uh, Serena uh, Sham. Serena is a Lebanese American, and I'm pretty sure that the, the, the American media did not even talk about her. No, they did. I don't think she, they did. She no. died in, uh, in, in in Turkey, very close to Kobani, when Kobani was a, was a hot thing back then, mm-hmm. uh, more than a year ago. And she was there was lot, there's a lot of reports that that uh, claim that she might have been killed by the Turkish intelligence uh, services uh, because she had at her disposal, and you could go back to her uh, interviews, she's a press TV correspondent, you could go back to her interviews with the press TV where she is saying, I fear for my life over Skype, over live TV. She's saying, I fear for my life because I've been followed by lots of, of mukhabarat, by lots of uh, people who work as uh, uh, undercover Se- police officers or security officers. Yes. Yeah. So, she, two days ago, she was voicing her concern over her, over her uh, life, and she lost it, and she's a mother of two. So uh, she died one year before uh, the routes were, were closed into Syria, were bombed by, by Russia and closed. And uh, we still, we still, there's still some areas that, that uh, the funding is, is, is being given to ISIS and the weapons are still uh, given to ISIS, but the oil stealing from Syria, the business between Turkey and, and ISIS have, have stopped. That's why uh, Abdogan was going crazy over Putin's decision to, to uh, have a, a no-fly zone over, over uh, yeah, Syria. That was their lifeline. That's ISIS's lifeline, yes. is and the oil. Was, yeah. and, 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 and Turkey was voicing its concern. God knows why. Obviously, we know why. Uh, and, and besides that, uh, there's some sort of, of uh, a paranoia going on in Turkey concerning the PKK and the Kurdish uh, uh, the Kurdish let's say, a file inside of Syria. We all know that the Kurds in Syria have declared a federation uh, two weeks ago, but I don't think that's going to be uh, up and standing for long. Uh, but uh, they are afraid that if some sort of a federation is to happen, whether in Iraq or Syria, it would be some sort of a sensation uh, experience and inspiration for uh, uh, for the Kurds inside of Turkey to do the same. But, uh, but I, I, I also do think that it's going to be a bit hard for the PKK to have a federation inside of, of, of uh, Turkey at the moment. Uh, or in the near future, because of the warfare that's going on with this, with the Turkish government, they need to go back to the negotiation table, or else this is going nowhere. And because of the demography inside of of Turkey, I mean, uh, they are scattered. The Kurds inside of Turkey are scattered. In Syria, they're not. Yeah. In Iraq, they're not. So, the majorly, the the basic uh, sort of independence that we might see, if there is an independent state to to happen, it might happen in. Kurdistan region of Iraq, but not in Syria. I don't see that happening in Syria nor in Turkey. They're talking about Rojava being a sort of, what do they call it, a state-led or a... um, But but Kurds are are all about uh, tribes, tribal leaders. How would you think that uh, Kurd tribal leaders from Syria would go along with Iraqis or would go along with Turks? I don't think that's possible. I mean, we have tribal system in in the Bukhara region in Lebanon. (laughs) We cannot keep the tribes from fighting one another. What about tribes that are talking about 15 million Kurds inside of Turkey alone, 15 million. So we have uh, uh, other uh, five or six million in in Syria and and maybe 10 or 12 million, maybe 10 million in in Kurdistan region. So 
it's it's hard. It's very hard. It's not one cohesive no, it's Kurdish not even one family. Culture. Right? It's, it's different yeah. culture as well. And well, we're just going to have to wait and see. But I, I, I anticipate that it's not going to happen. Even even the Barzani family, even the president in, in Kurdistan, acknowledges that he can simply just do a referendum and he just, could just go to the UN and have their flag uh, flying at the UN uh, headquarters and they would have a state. They, didn't, they don't even need to draw the borderline. Yeah. They would have a state and no one will have a say in it. But that's only the case in Kurdistan, uh, Iraq, because it's already divided. The U.S. invasion to Iraq already did the division uh, process, so it's already there. The Kurds are already in the north. But in Syria, it's a bit difficult, and Turkey, it's a big, bit difficult. And I think um, the, the stance of the United States in specific to the side of the, of the Kurds on this one is making Turkey lose its head. And this might be the ticket for Turkey to go down if they don't sit really at the negotiation table and start to find a solution there. So all the talk coming out of uh, of Washington, if you watch U.S. media or you listen to the presidential debates on the Republican side, even the Democrats, they say, we need a safe zone, Uh, we need a a um, Sunni-protected safe zone that's run by Sunnis, and etc. So what they're trying to do is basically, it's the old colonial, uh, it's the old colonial idea. to ask why. Because obviously in northern Iraq, in northern Syria, we have the biggest oil fields. We have the biggest gas fields. So that's why. I mean, if we, if let's say, if, if let's say Shias were the one residing in the north, they would help Shias. Let's say Hindus were, were it, residing it, in the north, they but, would help the Hindus. It doesn't, the, the U.S. doesn't care who resides where. As long as they uh, protect their interests and their their future interests and strategic goals in, in the area. so As long as they broker the deal. As, as, they, as long as they are the leaders in brokering this deal, because yeah. no hand is supposed to be higher than the, the U.S. hands in the region. That's the point. Yes. So but exa- that's why uh, it's going to be tough for Turkey to have a say in this, whether in Syria or in the Kurdish uh, uh, situation or Kurdish file, uh, if you wait. So uh, because of the, of the backing that the Kurds have from the U.S., uh, side and from the western side in, in general, uh, I think that uh, this just puts uh, the, the, the full stop for, for Turkey's role. It's the end of it. We're not going to see a future Turkish role that is serious, that has serious change in, in the region, especially in Syria, because basically Russia and the U.S. have, have agreed already on a political solution that, uh, contradict, that contradicts all the... the, the maybe let's say the the strategic goals of turkey it's uh, a solution where the the real opposition would sit with well just as we are now seeing in geneva would sit with the government with the syrian legitimate syrian government that was uh, elected by the people of syria and they would come to a certain uh, accord to a certain agreement and that is why we saw that the operations are still on the ground against ISIS, and no one would say otherwise. We did see that the spokesman from the, from the spokesperson from the White House being a bit confused there. He's like he was lost. He was looking for his mommy in the audience. He didn't know what to do, uh, what to say. But uh, the, no one is, is saying anything bad about uh, the Syrian Arab Army regaining control. We even seeing the BBC, for example, renaming the army and, and calling them the Syrian Army. And the Syrian forces, they even stopped saying Bashar's forces or Assad forces. That's that's a huge deal. That's a big deal. Yes. Yeah. So uh, the deal is brokered. The deal is on its way. When, But the thing is, the timeline. Who puts the timeline? And uh, and concerning the, the terrorist organizations working on the ground, uh, 
what what will the list include? Which which party will the list include? Obviously, ISIS and Nusra are, are there, but the bickering is on the smaller uh, groups, and uh, mainly they are trying to revive the 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 FSA, the Free Syrian Army, which is non-existential, to be honest. They, mm-hmm. they don't exist. There's nothing called the Free Syrian Army anymore. Yeah. The biggest terrorist groups just indulge. They ate it. So uh, they are trying to to revive uh, to revive it non-militarily by trying to do some sort of a rapprochement between the these areas between the government and the so-called rebels in those areas especially in in um in areas around Damascus in the middle in the uh, the center of, of Syria and also a bit northern in Homs as we saw earlier uh, like 4 months ago so they they're working on trying to do some sort of rapprochement between these groups and the government but uh, it has been done it has been agreed upon that the areas in uh, northeastern uh, Syria and the areas also in southern Syria because if you look at at southern uh, Syria it's on the border with Jordan and with occupied Palestine you have uh, Daraa district and other uh, districts they are majorly occupied by ISIS and Nusra Mm-hmm. And that's not good news for no one, yeah. for anyone. So, uh, well, it guarantees there's going to be more tension yes. in the region. Yes. That's all. Yeah. Yes, and that that also explains why now the the King of Jordan is is uh, being vocal about the role so of Turkey about the terrorists. He's because, looking ahead a yes, little bit. And thinking, yes, because yeah. we might even see some sort of a coordination between the Russians and the Jordanians uh, uh, on that side, because Jordan has the, the full right to protect its land as well, despite the fact that that most of, the, of those terrorists who are now residing in Daraa came all the way from uh, the Jordanian border. They came from outside and from Jordan as well. They went into Syria. But now it's it's a danger for all. No one, the harm is, is, is standing in everybody's way. So everybody has to sit down to coordinate whether they like it or not. And this is what we're going to see happening inside of Syria. Okay. Well, we got a couple of minutes left in this segment. I just, um, we're going to shift gears a little bit, but, uh, you know, moving a little bit away from Syria. From your position in the in the Middle East, yeah. in, in Lebanon, or just in the Middle East in general, looking at the U.S. elections, uh, and some people say it doesn't matter who gets elected, no, the it, government it always a lot. the government always gets in. But it, do you see any differences between uh, the potential presidents? So I'm going to ask you. Yeah. Who, <clears throat> Who do you like? Do you like Trump or Hillary Clinton? <laughs> so, or First, do you like neither I'll of say, them? I say I like no one. Because they are all part of the same system that is uh, forced upon the, the, the American public. But what I would say, before we started, I told you there's some sort of a phrase that is said in, in Lebanese, in Lebanese uh, uh, culture, that when your uh, neighbor's son uh, is dancing like crazy, you just sit, watch, and clap for him. This is what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be sitting and clapping for any lunatic who could reach this office because I know that would at least it would take some of the pressure there from from our area, from the Middle East. But to be factual about things, I am very much worried of Hillary Clinton becoming the next president because I know, I know for sure, if Hillary becomes the president of the United States of America, no longer than the summer of 2017, we will have another war in Lebanon. I am very sure of this. Israel will be over our heads, and as, and specifically after the 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 very much uh, debatable uh, uh, 
labeling by the GCC that Hezbollah now is a terrorist organization labeled by Arab states, by the GCC, specifically by Saudi Arabia. This gives every opportunity and every uh, legal aspect, if you will, on the, in the international arena for Israel to wage a war and kill us all in the name of, fi- of fighting terrorism, where in, in, in specific, it is the main terrorist in the region. So if Hillary becomes the president, I am, I am packing my bags. I'm taking my kids as far away as possible from here because it's going to be all hell loose. You're pretty sure. You're not alone, by the way, because the, the neoconservative lot in Washington has endorsed Hillary Clinton. So Rob, scary. Robert Kagan, uh, foreign policy initiative think tank, had Project for a New American Century signatory endorsed Hillary Clinton. So that should really tell everybody what they need to know, what they can expect with a Hillary presidency. Now, she's also running, she was running the Friends of Syria tour back in 2010 and 2011. A lot of people don't realize this or don't remember, but she was really running point. And that, to me, was the kind of the organization of what we see happening in Syria over the last six years. And so, and, and also with Iran, some some heavy statements were made about Iran. We will use nuclear weapons against them, or all options on the table. As <laughs> yeah, it were. I remember that. Yeah. And so this is really an extension of Israeli foreign policy, yes. if you will. Yes, to so, the American foreign. It's just being just taken and pandering to IPAC. Exactly. Basically. It is more than scary, to be honest, and it's scarier to think that the American public would would put their trust in this woman again. I mean, she's it's like having George Bush again with some sort of uh, a nice uh, tongue. She can speak eloquently and use very nice terminology when when Bush couldn't. But it's the same thing. It's the same war machine that will take the Lebanese. I'll tell, I'll tell you how it's going to happen. It's going to take the American youth, put them all in the system that's called the army, bring them all the way back to wherever it is, whether it's the Middle East or any other place in, in Asia, where we're not going to forget what's going on between China and the U.S. as well. So they're, they're going to they're gonna ship your, your boys back into some sort of a war zone that they will create and then kill us even more. This is what's going to happen. Repeat, not because they, yeah. Yes, that's a repeat. That's just going to repeat. And that's be, it's not that because they, they, they hate us or they, they want to see us. That No, because that's where their money is. The money, yes, is where the, the war is, where the war machinery is, where the weaponry is, where, where the, 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 uh, the security, the so-called quote-unquote security agencies like Black uh, Water is. Mm-hmm. So but we all know who's conducting the, the, the uh, operations in Yemen. And how it was given from Blackwaters to a new organization as well, who is conducting now the warfare and paying for insurgents to come from all over the world. They are training them to be snipers. They are training them to be, whether from uh, uh, Africa or from uh, uh, Latin America or either from or even from Eastern Europe. They are bringing men and they are training them to become insurgents, to become some sort, I'll, I'll explain it more, to become some sort of, of, of a Jason Bourne movie mm-hmm. that is happening right now in Yemen. So this is the next generation of killers for yes, hire, basically. exactly. So uh, th- this is how it's going to be. This is going to be more companies like this one endorsing war. Uh, uh, they are going to be bringing, they are going to be uh, supplying um, men, human resources for this kind of warfare, if not through soldiers, but through these uh, uh, men who are willing to, to fight for money and just kill more people for the sake of making their pockets even bigger. Have you heard of uh, General Smedley Butler? He was an American general during the uh, Roosevelt era in World War II, they tried a military 
coup in America that basically got stopped early on mm -hmm. down the chain. But he, he was the guy that the establishment went to and said, we need you to take over, basically. Mm -hmm. Smedley Butler was his name. And he has a great uh, essay he wrote. It's called War is a Racket. And he outlines almost verbatim what you just described there mm -hmm. back in nineteen, in early nineteen forties. Okay, and he wrote this, and it's as it's as relevant today as it was back then. Mm -hmm. And nothing has changed. That that nothing uh, will change that industry that the, the business mentality, the mentality of war, exactly. the has, mental model of 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 doing business on the blood. And the flesh of other uh, nations. Uh, that's that's been. I mean, but what we, we do? You want to go back to how the U.S. was built? Do you want to go that far? Do you want to go, go farther than that? And how Europe was a how Europe colonized the, the the entire southern hemisphere? Do you want to go that back and and speak and speak about this? It's the same strategy, but with different tactics that's being uh, brought upon us. It's the same goals that they want. It's if you go further back, thousands of years ago, it was because of spices, and then it was because of of other uh, resources, and then fuel, and, and then and now it's because of share prices. Yes. How high is the share price? Not only Does that, it? but if you're a country unwilling to abide by the economic system that's supposedly forced upon you by the higher power, then you will have a war sooner or later. Yeah. Because when you have a war, you will have chaos, you will have uh, your, your entire system will be shaken, and you will have to plead for them to help you out. And when they want to help you out, they will put loans in your, in your, in your uh, laps and tell you, well, this is the loan, but you will be in debt for generations and generations to come, and therefore you succumb to their power. That's what I call the international protection racket. Uh, Just like in your neighborhood, when they come to smash the window. And yeah, and tell say, you, yeah, pay us, we'll protect you. Yeah, don't worry, we'll make sure no one smashes your window. Yes. But you're indebted to them forever. Exactly. They have to own a part of your business and everything. Yes. This is how the mafia works. Exactly. But this is what we have on an international scale still, and... Uh, well, I, I am very encouraged, though, that a lot of people are becoming very aware of this more than ever before. And so I hope that in the next generation, you're going to see a lot more enlightened. I hope so, too. This, this I young really generation. Hope so for the sake of my daughters. Yeah. And I hope so. So this, these, these millennials that always get lambasted in the media, they're actually really important for yes, the history are. of the planet. So I have a lot of hope in the millennial generation. Me, too. Definitely. But um, I think we'll end it on that note. But Marwa Osman, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Sunday Wire. You're you're our first guest on this road show, and we really appreciate uh, your work. Uh, you can see Marwa's work all pretty much all over YouTube and on on the internet as well. But uh, I, I wish you had a blog. I'm hoping that you're going to start one. I'm I'm trying to work on this through my very heavy schedule. But um, I want to thank you very much, Patrick, for the, giving me the floor and giving me the opportunity to voice my uh, my thoughts and my concern as well over uh, the situation in the entire region and in, in, and on a global uh, platform as well and I want to thank everyone for listening to us and for giving them their for giving us their their uh, actual uh, ears yeah. once and in, in, in for for a change after all what the mainstream media has been doing alternative media is what we need right now and what we should all work for and uh, i want to thank you again and i want to welcome you again to to uh, lebanon please uh, <laughs> please please uh, uh, 
enjoy your time in Beirut. I know uh, we, we have many uh, system failures, but we do have very, uh, very nice areas, and our city is beautiful uh, at the end of the day. It's a, so. it's a fan, it, for all its faults, it's still a fantastic city. It is. It's it a little is. bit wild, yes. but it's fantastic, but, uh, and the people are fantastic. Well, well, yes, that's, so, that, that's, what, that's oh, what keeps us alive. So thank yeah. you very much. No, my pleasure, and thank you. And I hope we'll, we can also, in the future, when we leave, uh, we can still connect with you for getting an, an analysis about breaking events and things around the world. And we'll hopefully be back in touch. It would be my pleasure. Yeah, and uh, it will be our, our listeners' pleasure as well. We really appreciate it. Thank Marwa you. Osman, there she goes. So we'll be right back. We're going to take a short station break with the Alternate Current Radio Network, and we'll be right back after these messages. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Stay right there. I was under the impression that I was the clever bastard before I went in, but these boys were a completely different class. Head tricksters of the Premier Division. So we came, we saw, he died. 